from the KUAM Podcast Network, this is Arlene Live with conversation on island issues facing Guam and the Northern Mariana Islands. Now, here's Arlene. So today's the 12th of March, 2019, and this interview is with Martin Kastner. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure. I've always been kind of fascinated by nature and by wildlife, and I kind of followed that passion into university, into college life, and studied biology as my undergraduate degree, and then um, wasn't quite sure where I wanted to go with it and took a little time off just traveling and volunteering after that and ended up deciding that restoration ecology was a field I wanted to go into, something positive, kind of uh, proactive, constructive, and something that I could really kind of feel passionate about and work in passionately. And um, I did a master's degree in restoration ecology, working on kind of landscape level restoration mostly with plants, and ended up figuring out that really kind of the whole picture, full ecosystem restoration, um, and especially when it involved the recovery of wildlife species was my real passion. And um, following my master's, did a diploma internship in endangered species recovery, and, and... a kind of full ecosystem perspective on endangered species recovery. So involving the habitat, involving wildlife and the kind of ecosystem services that they provide. And most of that work was in the, on the island of Mauritius in the Indian Ocean, which has a lot of kind of parallels uh, ecologically with Guam. And my first job after that experience was in Guam, working with the Sali and it's kind of continued since then. I've been on Guam since 2015 and doing work. And, you love and it. <laughs> yeah, I do love it. And yeah, it's still a lot, a lot of work to be done. Where is that island located? Um, in the Indian Ocean, on um, so east of Madagascar, um, maybe a few hundred kilometers east of Madagascar. You said it has the same ecological similarity. Um, So some of the similarities are in terms of the role of uh, invasive species. So, I mean, famously, Mauritius was the home of the dodo, dodo bird, which was one of the first species, if not the first species, that humans realized went extinct because of them. And um, so they've lost probably more than half of their native bird species. Um, due to the combined effects of habitat loss and invasive species, and as have a lot of islands worldwide. But um, yeah, a lot of parallels. They do have an invasive snake as well, and so just a lot of parallels with Guam, and so kind of a lot of transferable issues. How did you associate these islands and their ecologies and their similarities with endangered species? Did you just discover this one day? Were you looking for some kind of a comparison? I've heard about Guam since my undergraduate 
degree, just kind of basic classes on conservation biology. It's a bit of a textbook, worst case scenario, kind of in the kind of severity of the impact of the brown tree snake. And so, you know, that's kind of the level that I heard about Guam. And also when I was on Mauritius, you know, it came up as well. Um, a few people who were teaching the course there had been to Guam. You know, quite honestly, it's a bit of a coincidence. I was looking for jobs, you know, once I was done my internship there, saw something, you know, on Guam that looked appealing. It was avian restoration. And that's kind of as deep as the, the connection went. So I was looking to kind of get my foot in the door in endangered species recovery in, you know, not necessarily birds even. I'm really interested in kind of the recovery of wildlife in general and um, ecosystems in general. And so, you know, I found a job that looked interesting and that was kind of what brought me to Guam. And, you know, since then I've really kind of understood the deeper connections. And I think even at the time when I first found the job, it really seemed like okay, this is, you know, kind of as big a challenge in terms of ecological restoration as there is. And so, you know, why not? I mean, why not jump in the deep end? What job was this? So it was working on developing a nest box for the Sali. So um, the project, this was a new project and... Um, I had worked on a little bit of nest box work in Mauritius. They use nest boxes for a native species of parrot and a native species of kestrel, which is a small falcon. And so I had, you know, some idea of kind of where to get started. And so I went out and surveyed Sali nests, the ones that are in kind of different structures and trees on Anderson and then went about kind of with um, Dr. Julie Savage and her husband, Dr. Tom Seibert, going about thinking of different prototypes and what we could try and test and eventually work towards something that would work for the Sali. How did you get in contact with Julie? Um, through She was my supervisor. Oh, pretty neat lady, huh? Yeah, yeah, very <laughs> neat lady. Yeah. So let's go back a little bit and get really curious about this. You decide today that you're going to go out and you're going to look for nests. Mm -hmm. Do you have any background knowledge before you go out where nests may be? You know, step one is kind of where are they? And then, yeah, it's just a matter of kind of being attentive, listening. Um, so observing, walking, and just kind of paying attention to what's going on and then you know, if you see a bird perched near, you know, something that looks like a nesting cavity, then just look if it's going in and out. You could sometimes see a little bit of nesting material coming out of the entrance. So, yeah, it's, a, it's that simple. I mean, I think I was finding probably um, 10 or 15 a day. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're out there. I'd say that, you know, it's just kind of a matter of being in the right location. I mean, you can, when we're doing surveys of the Sali in general, um, the population is quite concentrated. 
And then as soon as you get to kind of the limits of their range in that area, it really thins out. And so you, it would take a long time. I mean, you know, I mean, there are Sali all across at least the north of the island, but how much they're nesting and, you know, I mean, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a nest in most places, you know, on a given day, but where they're kind of concentrated, it's actually pretty easy. So Sali are willing to nest, as I mentioned earlier, in kind of just about anything, but in natural situations, they often nest in the tops of coconut trees and also in coconut snags, which is basically the standing trunk where the crown has fallen off and they'll nest in the top of that. And you do see that on other islands and there are records of that in Guam historically. They also nest in the tops of telephone poles, which look a lot like coconut snags. You said that that project had already been in place and that's what you came to do, right? Sure. I, I got hired on as the sort of field technician and there was a postdoc, um, Dr. Shane Sires, who was in charge of the project. He ended up taking a job at USDA and WRC in, um, in Hilo maybe a couple of weeks after I started. And so we never actually overlapped. So I sort of inherited the project in a way as kind of the staff on Guam with uh, Dr. Savage and Dr. Seibert as a PIs in Colorado. And so I was doing the field work and kind of, you know, helping as much as possible, kind of work through the kinks of the projects, all the kind of different elements of the work we were doing on Guam. For those who are listening and don't have any idea what field work is, Mm -hmm. describe field work in this project. It started off with going out and looking for any nests we could find um, and characterizing them, which means noting what type of structure they were in, how high, what direction they're facing, what vegetation is nearby, all the kind of little details um, about um, where the birds were nesting. And if there was anything in that, the size of the entrance hole, that kind of thing, that would kind of inform our decisions when we were thinking about the nest box. Ends up they are kind of willing to nest in just about anything. There is some nesting in an old kind of ornamental fighter jet that they have on um, Anderson and coconut trees and um, coconut snags, so dead trees where the crown has fallen off and nesting in the top in buildings and lampposts. But that's interesting information. And so went out and documented nests, also monitored the nests, so looked inside with a camera and a monitor to see how many eggs they were laying, how long the eggs took to hatch, Uh, how long the chicks took to fledge and, um, you know, how often they were nesting, all all that type of data. So that was the first kind of stage, looking at the natural nests, then building the nest boxes, which isn't uh, fieldwork per se, but, you know, it's kind of hands-on, testing different prototypes to see how they perform in the field. Specifically, we're looking at kind of how the materials since we knew we'd need to install them somewhere exposed so the snakes couldn't get to them, 
we wanted something that wouldn't heat up, so we were monitoring the internal temperatures of the boxes and settled on um, a kind of variation on the same prototype, so a wood box and a cedar box that uh, look more or less similar, but we wanted to give the birds a little bit of choice in what we were offering them to see if they had a preference for one material or another. Um, installing the boxes, then monitoring as the birds adopted the boxes, and you know, keeping track of how successful the birds were at breeding in the boxes. So all that type of field work. This is Arlene Live, and we've got more coming up in just a moment. Start your day the KUAM way with our new streaming shows on Facebook Live each weekday. Here's your starting lineup. Mondays, we'll give you a glimpse into our morning meetings with the KUAM news team. Tuesdays, join our group chat with Chris Barnett. Wednesdays, it's crime time with the island's law enforcers. Thursdays, get the latest info with Dave Delgado, who's in the zone. And Fridays, we get Fit AF, fitness and fun. And the best part, all our shows are completely interactive, so you're directly part of the conversation. Join us Monday through Friday starting at 9 a.m. Start your day the KUAM way. Now, more Arlene Live on the KUAM Podcast Network. So did the birds have a preference? Not really, no. They're quite happy to nest in whatever we're offering them. But, you know, the, the boxes work well in that they're protected from the elements. So we did see um, kind of really high nesting success in the boxes. So, um, you know, first because we put them in places and made sure we put them in places that predators can get into. And second of all, they're sheltered from the elements. They're kind of lower than ambient temperatures, well ventilated. And so for those reasons, the birds are quite successful in them. But it started off with kind of some indication that they might prefer the um, wooden boxes. And then really quickly, they kind of ended up using both the wooden and the PVC boxes equally with no kind of obvious preference and kind of pretty equivalent success in both, so, yeah. Does one get hotter in the daytime internally than uh, the other, the PVC The wood boxes wood? get kind of a little bit warmer, but not to a point where it's even necessarily statistically significant. So, yeah, essentially equivalent, I would say. That's interesting. But PVC the nice noise. thing about the, boxes, the PVC boxes is that they're durable, They've been up there for over three years, and you know there's no kind of indication of wear and tear, so that's a that's a plus. And in the wood, um, do they? They're all the, fine the, as well. They're holding up really well, but you could tell that they're weathering, you know, some small cracks and that kind of thing. But they're all still up there. Nothing, even despite the small storms we've had, mm. no damage at all. So yeah, so it just so happens that a population hung on on Anderson, um, and that's recorded kind of throughout the years. And so it could be that there are large expanses of lawn 
um, a lot of kind of space between the runways, which may have prevented the snakes from getting to those birds. And so there may have been a few stragglers in the 80s, 90s, when the rest of the bird species disappeared. And as the snake control ramped up, then the population has been able to recover somewhat. And so it's kind of a combination of the impact of the snake control and the historical kind of um, just remnant population in the last kind of most northern area of uh, Guam, the last area where the snake invasion occurred. That's a very interesting point for me because my understanding of the impact that the brown tree snake had on on wildlife on Guam is that they were accidentally introduced on Navy ships down at the port. Uh, I think that's kind of the the common understanding. Okay, and then it spread south. And so the native birds in the south started to disappear. Mm -hmm. But the Sali make their way to Cocos Island. I don't think there's any indication that they ever were not on Cocos Island. So I think that population was likely there and just remained there uh, despite, and because the snake never crossed to Cocos Island. But I don't think there's any indication, as I understand it, that a sort of exodus to Cocos Island occurred. But the population has kind of persisted on Cocos Island. And they do, on other islands, kind of, they're known to hang around seabird colonies and they're known to depredate seabird eggs. And so even in the kind of northern islands, you know, you have Sali on every northern island and, you know, they've been recorded eating seabird eggs and kind of existing in those areas. Northern islands from Luta, Tinian, and Saifan. Yeah, a- and anything further, yeah, oh, I think they're on all the islands in the Marianas oh, as far as okay. I understand. That's yeah. good to know. Sure, I mean, you know, I'm relatively new to the system, but I've read a lot about Sali and so as far as I know, that's correct. There's a lot of literature, you know, from, um, and oral history as far back as the 1800s, 1900s about birds on Guam. And yeah, I mean, as far as I know, you know, Sali have been on Cocos, recorded on Cocos from well before the, the snake was ever introduced to Guam. So, yeah. You mentioned that the Sali are crevice dwellers. Mm-hmm. Describe what that is, please. Sure. In terms of bird nests in general, there's kind of two main types. A cup nester, so the kind of typical stick, twig, kind of open cup that you would see just on a branch. And then a cavity nester, so something that would nest in in a hole, either that they excavate themselves, kind of like a woodpecker. You could see kind of chipping away, and then they would, you know, nest in some kind of tree cavity or a branch that fell off and leaves a cavity in a tree that a bird can nest in. And um, birds that use nest boxes are generally cavity nesters. And there's a whole range from sparrows, that kind of thing, the little Eurasian tree sparrows on Guam that nest behind shutters, that would count as a cavity nester, to swallows, martins, um, elsewhere to owls um, and birds of prey. And the kingfisher, the sea heck, also a cavity nester, they're one that um, 
that excavate their own cavities. So they'll find a relatively soft trunk of a coconut tree or some other tree and chip away until they kind of dig out their own cavity. Sali are cavity nesters, but they don't actually excavate their own cavity. They find a cavity, either an old sihek cavity or just a, uh, an area on a tree where a branch fell off and rotted away into a cavity. Or on other islands, you often see them nesting in holes in the limestone, in limestone cliffs or around the entrance of caves. Um, they'll, you know, they'll place a little nesting material. They usually use um, at least on Guam, the kind of what looks like needles on the ironwood trees, um, the casserina needles, and then some pieces of coconut leaflets. So they'll strip away small pieces of uh, coconut leaves and then create a, a cup inside the cavity and lay their eggs there. What is the color of the Sali's egg? Sali eggs are um, kind of light blue and or light blue greenish almost and then they're reddish brownish splotches over sometimes the entire egg sometimes just one of the sort of sides of it but yeah so bluish greenish with kind of reddish brown spots on it or splotches how many eggs do they lay in a clutch two to three that's yeah. it yeah. pretty small Pretty small, yeah. What is the incubation period of the eggs? So they'll incubate for 15 days. How far apart do they, do they lay them? Usually consecutive days. So one a day? Yep. So in three days, the nest is full? Yep. And then 15 days from the first or from the last? Yeah, they normally also hatch on consecutive days. There is a little bit of variation. So some might hatch in 14 days, some might hatch in 16 days. I only normally check nests a few times a week, so I don't always see them um, hatching on consecutive days. But we, I did follow a subset of nests daily um, just to kind of hone in on those numbers. And yeah, so they'll usually lay on consecutive days and hatch on consecutive days. Sometimes they'll hatch together, so maybe there's some kind of stimulus and they start to hatch and then the siblings decide they want to hatch as well. But um, 25 days from hatching to fledgling, so from the day they leave the egg to the day they fly out of the nest. And only quite three, pretty. And only three a clutch. Yeah, so normally, I mean, we've seen as few as one, and the absolute record was four. Um, we've only seen that once in about 300 nests. Um, That's a lot of nests. Yeah. That's very good news. Yeah, no, they, I mean, so they nest, so not as you said not too many eggs um per clutch but they do nest quite often do so. the parents share responsibility in feeding the the brood they do yeah they do yeah okay so they systematically go off and on is, yeah, does so, one always stay around uh almost always yeah i mean sometimes they'll by. be kind of they'll, they'll be nearby they'll usually kind of take turns um so incubating which is sitting on the eggs and the young chicks and then feeding as well they yeah, both parents kind of play a role. It seems like the females, the moms, um, are usually the ones incubating at night. Um, but otherwise, it's, yeah, pretty shared parental duties. 
Don't go away. There's more coming up with Arlene Live on the KUAM Podcast Network. Hey, everybody, and what is going on? Jason Salas here with KUM Digital, and I'm going to get you right back to your show in just a moment, but I am popping in to let you know about the amazing opportunities you have to sell your brand, get customers for your service, or promote your event on all our library of podcasts on the KUM Podcast Network. Our shows have global distribution and are sent to all the major podcast directories and devices, from mobile phones and tablets to laptops and smart speakers to integrated TVs and all on demand. By running an audio ad on the KUM Podcast Network, you'll guarantee timely exposure and market penetration for your stuff and see immediate results no matter what your end game or actionable items are. You want to drive downloads for a cool new app that you've built? Done. Want to see your restaurant gain an instant surge in foot traffic? Easy peasy, man. Does your business need some sort of boost? All you got to do is plug a promo code that ties into an incentive and see measurable, tangible results that very same day. Podcasting is the internet's fastest growing ad platform, and you can reach customers and partners now. To find out more about our ad opportunities and how podcast plugs can work for you, get in touch with us at podcast at KUAM.com. Just think about it. Your ad could be running right here instead of my shrill voice, and your business would have a big leg up on the competition. So don't let this opportunity to connect with customers, extend your reach, and increase your effective exposure pass you by. Get in touch with the KUAM digital marketing experts by emailing podcasts at KUAM.com. That's podcasts, plural, at KUAM.com. And let us put together an effective marketing plan for your stuff, just like this ad has been. See what I did there? All right, everybody, we're going to talk to you soon. But for now, let's get you back to this podcast. Now, back to the conversation with Arlene Live. When you said earlier that the Sali predates other eggs, Mm -hmm. do they eat all seabird eggs? On Guam, so, you know, on Cocos, there's the white terns, black noddies, brown noddies. And um, on Anderson, there's white terns and brown noddies. And I've definitely found eggs of both of those, of white terns and of brown noddies that look like they've been um, predated. And I've seen Sali around a brown noddy nest kind of harassing the birds and with a broken egg. Um, below. So um, I think that it's possible that they could predate the eggs of, you know, all those species that are at least um, nesting on Guam and on Cocos Island. But I'm not sure about, you know, the the boobies on Rhoda, that kind of thing. Oh, goodness. What do they eat? So a lot of fruits. So they eat, it seems like almost the majority of native um, kind of trees and shrubs and vines in the limestone forest, um, and then you know um, some of the plants that are in the savanna as well. So their favorite, um, and I apologize for the Latin names, but Premna, um, Ficus, which is the uh, figs, Nunu, and um, the different species of figs, 
papaya, um, some of the vines, um, so jasminum, but really, I mean, an, an incredible diversity of fruits. So um, they, they love lemai and dukduk. Um, they, they'll even eat coconut. We've seen them eat coconut kind of off the ground once it was broken up. Um, and then, so maybe we, I think we've probably recorded over 30 species of, um, of plants of fruits that they eat. Um, and then a lot of insects. So you see them bringing in kind of katydids, grasshoppers, um, and, you know, they'll go after kind of maybe ant eggs or termite eggs and rotten logs, that kind of thing. A lot of spiders. Um, the spiders are one of the things you see them bringing back to the nest most often. Um, geckos, I've seen them carrying geckos and um, probably skinks as well. Um, butterfly? Never seen them eating butterflies, no. Um, it's possible, but yeah, it seems like the drongos really kind of go after the butterflies the most. Yeah, I don't know if uh, they're quite agile enough to catch a butterfly. It actually seems that's probably quite true. difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the agility with their forked tail. The Sali doesn't have a long tail. No, no. I mean, the yeah, it's a nice tail, nice yeah. longish, but yeah, not not even close to the right. drongo. Right. I've seen the drongo attack, or at least swoop, swoop mm -hmm. down. Uh, very closely on the Sali, and they're not at all bothered by them. No, no. If anything, they they give as much as they take. You can see them ch chasing drongos away from kind of around the nests. So and they are territorial. Yeah, yeah, they are territorial. I mean, do they? You said they predate on the eggs. Do they go after the hatchlings? Uh, I am not sure. I think. If it's happened, it's probably recorded somewhere. So see kind of in uh, Doug's book, Birds of Palau, you can see them and they discuss kind of how they go into nests. So it's possible they eat uh, nestlings, you know, like the aga do and um, even kingfishers. Um, but offhand, I couldn't say if they would eat nestlings or not. I, I can't see why they wouldn't. I mean... Yeah, they so, eat geckos so there, yeah. Um, so maybe right a small after, right after hatching. Yeah, on Guam, there's not too many bird, you know, nestlings that they would be able to go after. What know, about the, each other? Do they do they predate on another? I've never family? really seen that. I okay. mean, um, we've seen you know a few kind of aggressive interactions, but I think if that did happen. I think there's a good chance we would have seen that by now. I mean, we've monitored. Um, hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of nests, and um, yeah, never seen that. I think once the eggs hatch, they almost always make it and almost always fledge. And, so then the, the and survival when they rate's don't, high. It is extremely high up to the point they leave the nest. Once they fledge, it's actually extremely low. We've recorded, you know, just overwhelming predation on young fledglings by whom by mostly snakes and yeah despite the you know snake control there's still snakes there and the ones that are there so in 2018 we had about five percent fledgling survival and in 2017 it was a little higher around 25 percent 
but both those numbers are extremely low. So then the snake predation got worse in one year, from 17 yeah, to 18? Yeah, I mean, it was worse, you know, it's hard to know kind of what the baseline variation is or if it did just legitimately get worse, but I mean, both numbers are very low. And so, yeah, I think that, I, you know, it's quite obvious that the floodlings are extremely vulnerable, some cat predation as well, some kind of natural causes of mortality just in bad storms, um, but the majority was brown tree snakes. How many times in an hour do hatchlings have to be fed? Yeah, I mean, it could be, you know, as often, depending on the bird, as often as every 15 or 20 minutes. But I would say with a Sali, I think it depends how old they are. And we don't have kind of like great numbers for um, nests over a long period of time. That's um, not something we've done as part of our research. But we've watched a lot of nests and, you know, at least you could see them once or twice an hour, at least feeding nestlings. And you would assume, and it would be interesting for, you know, a student at some point in undergrad to go and just watch nests at different ages and see if, you know, it's possible the youngest chicks get fed most often, like in other species. And then as they get older, they would need to be fed less often. I mean, I think that's birds a, in general, that's kind of seems to be the trend. So they, they feed the youngest first to strengthen them and then they yeah, then they can pull, pull back. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, there could be a, a few reasons. I mean, the young are naked. They don't have insulation. So their metabolism might be a little higher and they might just be growing at a faster rate. But yeah, it does seem like, you know, and when people are hand rearing birds as well, tend to hand rear, you know, feed at least every um, hour or so once the birds are young, very young, and then you kind of can pull back a little bit as the birds get older. Again, their range on Guam, which is where I've done all my work, is pretty restricted. So it's housing, it's dorms, it's uh, commercial buildings, but it seems within that they're pretty open to any kind of scenario closer to the forest, further from the forest, open fields, a little bit more vegetation, but there's not a really wide range of kind of um, habitats in there. So okay. yeah, I mean, it would take someone studying them, you know, maybe on a different island to really kind of get at whether they have a preference. I mean, I know that they definitely nest in kind of different habitats. You know, you see them on Cocos Island, you see them um, in the forest on Saipan, along the cliff, you know, cliff edges near the sea, on Rhoda, by the seabird sanctuary, in the savanna, you know, just about anywhere. So, I mean, if there is a preference, it'll be kind of subtle. Okay. Stay where you are. The conversation continues with Arlene Live when we come back. What's up, fellow online addicts? I'm Asha, and it's literally my job to scour the internet every day to see what you guys are saying about our stories and to see what you're snarking on. If you got beef with a particular island issue, we'll give your voice an extra boost on trend spotting. It's our weekly rundown of everything that's got you buzzing and what conversations you can't look away from. From the serious to the silly, from ludicrous news to legit headlines, from the weirdest Instagram posts to the most retweeted stories, 
to the insane DMs we get, we're going to show you the deeper side of what's making group chats, what's trending, and what you're sharing. So check out Trendspotting on YouTube, on Facebook Live, and on IGTV, all at KUAM News. If you've got something to say, sound off. We'll find you. And now, back to your show right here on the KUAM Podcast Network. Now, back to the conversation with Arlene Live. What would you like to say to listeners in relationship to maybe not just the birds, but their awareness of their environment, their ecology, how they could be better stewards? Yeah, I I think that, I mean, just as kind of I have an innate passion for wildlife, I think that's something that is not uncommon and it's actually, you know, present in a lot of young people especially. And I think, you know, people in general do get really amazed when they see animals around them. And I think, you know, it's unfortunate that on Guam, that kind of relationship can has, has been lost with a lot of the species that just aren't around anymore. And, you know, also as kind of the society is more urbanized and that's common, not just to Guam, but to almost anywhere. But um, yeah, I mean, I think as much as possible, rekindling a relationship with nature is crucial and I think it's enjoyable. It's not just, it's not really an effort, it's more um, kind of a, a habit and something that can be quite fulfilling. And so, yeah, I mean, I think as biologists, we're lucky because we're out there um, and, you know, we're spending time in nature every day as part of our jobs. But, you know, we aren't the ones with the most power to make decisions in terms of protecting lands, in terms of what happens to um, to natural lands on Guam that are still being lost at a rapid pace. I think, I mean, you know, there are a lot of environmental issues in terms of erosion, in terms of fishing, and so just as much as possible, you know, not to let those decisions go to a handful of people, but to be engaged in kind of decisions that go around kind of stewardship, I think is crucial. And so, you know, I think as part of, yeah, uh, someone's kind of civic duty, I think being aware and being engaged in, in nature is quite crucial to me. Well, thank you very much. Keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, I will. <laughs> and, and look forward to some partnership work here. Yeah, me pretty, too. Me too. Well, quick. it's you know, it's starting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I, uh, me too. All right. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. You've been listening to Arlene Live on the KUAM Podcast Network. Join her every Monday for a new edition. Log on soundcloud.com slash KUAM news. 
or listen anytime, scroll down and click on Arlene. We welcome your feedback and suggestions. Email Arlene, R-L-E-N-E, at ArleneLive.com. Thanks for listening.